Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. New England fishermen rely a lot on the restaurant industry. So with most restaurants closed or just doing carryout, the fishing industry has taken a hit. This week we all worked uh, half the hours and then unfortunately we've had to furlough about 70 to 80 percent of the crew. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We look at the economic impact of the coronavirus on Maine fishermen. And a possible symptom of COVID-19 is loss of smell. I went down to my kitchen and opened a can of cat food and realized I couldn't smell it. But Rhode Island is not recognizing that as a symptom when screening patients for the virus. Plus, a Harvard study outlines the long-term health risks for gunshot survivors. You know, any crowded areas like the mall, the day after Christmas, stuff like that where I feel like something's going to happen probably triggers me to, like, that defense mode that I was in. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Fever, dry cough, shortness of breath. These are the symptoms of COVID-19 most people know to look for, and oftentimes the symptoms required to get tested for the virus. Recently, Rhode Island health officials expanded the screening criteria for testing residents, but it did not include loss of smell, another symptom of COVID-19 increasingly reported by doctors across the globe. Lynn Arditi of the Public's Radio reports. I went down to my kitchen and opened a can of cat food and realized I couldn't smell it. C is 60 and healthy. We're just using her first initial at her request. Other than her age, there's nothing in her medical history that puts her at greater risk for the coronavirus. And she says she's been vigilant about washing her hands. Still, a few days before she lost her sense of smell, she felt like she was coming down with something. Her throat, a little bit of queasiness, um, fatigue... But nothing to indicate to me that it was coronavirus. I had no fever. I had no cough. The next day, she still couldn't smell anything, so she called her doctor. Towards the end of the conversation, I said, I really don't think this is anything. And I called you just because I had read about it, and I thought maybe it was something you should know so we can kind of keep tabs on it. She said, no, I think the Department of Health needs to know. C works at a health clinic in Rhode Island in a job that doesn't bring her in direct contact with patients. Nobody in her office who she knows of has tested positive for COVID-19, the illness caused by the coronavirus. That same day she called her doctor, C got a call from a nurse at the health department. The nurse told her they'd seen her doctor's notes and she was scheduled to be tested the next day. Her test came back positive. Philip Chan is an infectious disease physician at Brown University. Chan says the loss of smell, or anosmia, can be a red flag. Anosmia has been described for COVID-19 as a symptom of the disease. It's something that physicians are aware of, uh, and it's something that we are screening for. And certainly if patients have anosmia, 
It's a sign that they should be tested for COVID-19. A widely published statement from a group of British doctors says in South Korea, a loss of smell was the major presenting symptom in 30 percent of patients testing positive for COVID-19 who had otherwise mild cases. At a news conference last Friday, Governor Gina Raimondo urged anyone with symptoms to seek a referral for testing from their primary care doctor. We need folks not to be shy about calling their doctor if they're sick and wondering whether they need a test. Because we're ramping up and the more we test, the better off we'll all be. But the state's screening criteria for COVID-19 do not include loss of smell. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization also don't list it as a symptom of COVID-19. A state health department spokesman said in an email that there's not enough scientific data to include it in the state's screening criteria. He said other symptoms like trouble breathing, fever, and muscle aches are much more prevalent than loss of smell. But some people who are infected don't have the more common symptoms. I could breathe easily. My sinuses were clear and, and my lungs didn't feel blocked at all. They just ached. Betha Wood is a 39-year-old hairstylist and owner of Salon Bianco in Providence. She was helping prepare dinner at a friend's house on March 18th when she noticed she couldn't smell the food. They were cooking and I couldn't smell anything. And then I started sniffing, you know, candles and anything I could find that had a smell. And I realized I had absolutely no sense of smell. Three days later, Wood read a news story about how a loss of smell may be a telltale sign of the coronavirus. She called her doctor. They had a nurse call me back and ask one series of questions. And then a doctor called me back and asked me the second set of questions and gave me instructions. By then, she'd already closed her hair salon as a precaution. Wood was not told to get tested. She was instructed to self-quarantine. For C, who tested positive for COVID-19, it wasn't until several days after she lost her sense of smell that she started really feeling sick. Muscle aches, nausea, and fatigue. To the point where it was really hard to get out of bed, um, even to stand up for more than a couple of minutes at a time. That delay in the onset of more serious symptoms is behind growing concerns in the medical community that people who may be infected may not realize that they are at risk of spreading the virus. A national organization of ear, nose, and throat specialists is now calling for anosmia, or loss of smell, to be added to the list of screening tools for COVID-19. But so far, neither the CDC nor the World Health Organization have indicated whether they are considering adding it to the list. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lynn Arditti. The iconic New England fishing industry has taken an economic hit, like most businesses out there during the coronavirus pandemic. In Maine, about 30,000 people depend on the state's marine economies, and just about every one of them is dealing with the fallout. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever has the story. Jeff Auger says when famed Boston restaurant chain Legal Seafood started closing doors two weeks ago, the trend was obvious. But... It was amazing how quickly it came crashing to a halt. Auger is river foreman at one of the big Damariscotta River oyster-growing operations, Mook Sea Farm. He says that about a week ago, trucks sent to the company's usual Boston buyers started coming back almost fully loaded with unsold oysters. Then it got worse. So, yeah, this week we we all worked uh, half the hours, and then, um, unfortunately, we've had to furlough about 70 to 80 percent of the crew. 
That's about a dozen workers, he says. Most or all of the region's oyster farms find themselves on the ropes during what is usually one of the busiest times after a winter slowdown. And this was supposed to be serious money-making time for the state's elver fishermen. The elver price is uh, $500 a pound compared to the 2000 last year. Krista Tripp of South Thomaston is, like many in Maine's seafood industry, a multifaceted saltwater entrepreneur. In addition to netting the glass eels to serve now anemic Asian markets, she's a sometimes sternman on her father's lobster boat, and she runs a small oyster farm as well. Tripp says that the COVID-19 pandemic has laid waste to the U.S. restaurant sector, which usually accounts for about 70 percent of seafood sales in the U.S. and Maine. We're usually selling to the restaurants and to different distributors. I, I sell to a few different distributors, and all of their markets have stopped. Up the coast in Stonington, lobsterman Genevieve McDonald says this time of year she's usually getting her boat back in the water and ready to hunt for a specialty fish, halibut, but she's holding back for now. I'm not sure there will be a market. We sell to a a niche market that goes directly to restaurants. I have a feeling these fine dining restaurants probably are not serving fresh halibut right now. She's staying busy enough, though. McDonald represents Stonington and other fishery-dependent downeast towns in the state legislature. She's been on the phone a lot with Maine's congressional delegation, seeking details on just how Maine fishermen and aquaculturists access unemployment benefits or small business loans to help tide them over these rough waters. Maine's lending community, she adds, is stepping up. I mean, I have a boat payment myself and was able to work with my lender, and I've talked to other fishermen that have been able to get extensions as well. And it's not like Maine fishermen are throwing up their hands and waiting for a government handout. Many are selling their hauls at pop-up markets, where they can often get a better price than from dealers, if dealers are buying at all. That can continue now, even with Governor Janet Mills' latest stay-at-home order. According to the Department of Marine Resources, lobstermen are considered essential workers, and their licenses entitle them to sell directly consumers, although guidance for shellfish is a little more complicated. Like, the local food movement right now is on fire in Maine. And buying closer to the boat is a great thing, says Annie Salikas, executive director of the Maine Lobster Dealers Association. Wholesalers struggling to keep up their usual level of purchases want to see local boats, bait shops, and wharfside businesses stay healthy in whatever way possible, she says. But she adds that the entire value chain needs support, including from the $300 million Maine Senator Susan Collins helped to earmark for the seafood industry within the latest federal stimulus package. We're also concerned for our customers in places like Chicago and Houston because it isn't if, if they are not... If they are not liquid, if they are not able to purchase products and distribute to their restaurants and their bars and their casinos, then our product doesn't have the value that it needs to have here. So we are looking at this holistically as the entire seafood industry in the United States. It could be weeks before federal dollars actually start flowing to the states and thence to their strapped businesses. Oyster Farm foreman Jeff Auger, whose company is continuing health benefits for furloughed workers, says the potential $600 a week unemployment benefit can't come soon enough for his crew. The practical question is, is it going to be there, you know, this week, next week or the week after or in a month and a half? But for the state's dominant seafood fishery, lobster, the timing could be worse. Many of the smaller inshore operations usually don't get going until late spring. And for some of the big offshore trawlers, there's the federal scallop season near Gloucester, Massachusetts, that opened just this month. 
Shabig Island fisherman Alec Todd and his son, who steamed down there this week, says it was a very different scene from previous years. We spent the whole time on the boat there alone. I mean, it's it's totally different than the other years where we were down there where, you know, we'd go to eat, you know, go eat breakfast, go eat lunch, go do whatever. We're just stuck on the boat, quarantined, I guess. Todd says the price scallops fetched at the new Bedford auction weren't eye-popping, but still strong enough to make the trip worth it. That, he says, and new demand from locals in Maine that he saves some of those shellfish back to sell to them when he gets home. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Falmouth, Maine. As the economy has ground to a halt and airport traffic has slowed to a trickle, the people who make their living driving passengers have been idled. Thousands of limo drivers are joining the waves of newly unemployed in Massachusetts. WGBH senior reporter Philip Martin took a ride with one driver in Boston who says this is not the first pandemic to touch his life. I'm in the rear passenger seat of a brand new Cadillac moving slowly down Massachusetts Avenue. The scene on this day in Boston is eerily absent of Bostonians, most who are confined indoors as the pandemic continues to wreak havoc. It takes me back to the bombing. Remember everybody shelter in place and this is exactly how it was. This is scary, but it's real. Carl Bright is a limousine driver and owner of a small company, Transportation Initiative. The absence of people in the streets translates as the absence of customers traveling anywhere, whether by foot, plane, or limousine. I used to do a lot of business with clients who come into town and want to go to the Patriots games. Some of them come into town and they call up because they want to go to the museum or to uh, the symphony. Originally from the West African nation of Sierra Leone, Bright worked for years as an engineer, but always dreamed of setting up his own limo service, which he did a decade ago. Before the onset of the pandemic, Bright says he earned five to $6,000 a week, driving and hiring others to drive for him. He had regular clients and only drove trips that had been booked in advance. And now? All of that's pretty much dried up. I used to have some other people that I put to work, independent contractors. I couldn't do it all myself. That's all pretty much evaporated. But Bright puts his own financial losses in perspective. He comes from a country that has seen pandemics before. Sierra Leone has been ravaged by civil war and Ebola, a deadly virus that took nearly 4,000 lives over two years. In Boston's tight-knit African community, where fates and histories intertwine, many lost family and relatives. It's something Bright thinks about often, especially as coronavirus devastates American communities, where citizens have no experience with a health emergency on this scale and the fear that comes with it. Yeah, there's an irony to that. And like courageous health professionals in the United States currently, Bright said people in Sierra Leone also put their lives on the line to stop the spread of Ebola. Well, I lost a good friend that I went to school with and I lost him because he was actually trying to help other Sierra Leoneans. That's how he got infected. He died being a human being. You know, he gave his life for others. We're heading to Logan. I'm the only passenger so far today. We're stopped at a red light in this corridor near Boston Medical Center, which has been branded Methadone Mile. 
A man wrapped in rags taps on the window. To my surprise, Bright rolls it down. Can you buy me something to eat, please, brothers? Make sure you get something Yes, to eat. man, it's to eat, man. Sure, man. Me and my girl, man, right now. Bright hands some money through the open window. He tells me that the virus may show us how much we depend on and need each other. This has the potential of showing us that we are more linked together globally than we know. We should now be cognizant of the fact that we are a brother's keeper. You have reached your destination. We've reached Logan, yet another portrait of still life in Boston. Travel here used to represent a significant part of Bright's business, now wiped out by the economic turn of events with no end in sight. And it worries me that if this thing goes six months, of course, if there's no business, I'll be home, not just wasting my gas. But at the end of it all, yes, I will be in business. He drives off, hoping that before the day's end, there will be another paying passenger in the back seat. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Philip Martin. Last week, we asked you to share what's on your mind during the coronavirus pandemic. Kate Zod, a listener from Connecticut, called with this question. Hi, um, I was wondering, can you catch COVID-19 from your groceries or from packages that are delivered? Um, I know a couple, they leave their mail in the garage for three days before they open it. So I'm just wondering exactly how careful I should be. Thank you. Bye. For an answer, we look to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Fauci recently appeared on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and he says handwashing is still one of the most important things to do. I don't think we need to get completely obsessed about packages that come in because those types of surfaces, the virus might live there for a very short time. But people say, should I, should I get a package from a grocery store that says made in China? I, I wouldn't worry about that. That's not the issue. It's more the close things, the hand washing. Kate, we hope that helps answer your question. And we want to hear from you. It's now four weeks of being cooped up in the house. I've been coping in the yuppiest of yuppie ways. Long walks in the morning, six minutes of meditation at night. But geez, no more than that. And sometimes I write in my journal. I bet you all have way more interesting things to say about your coping mechanisms, so tell us about it. Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. After the break... There's a shortage of teachers of color in the U.S. We look at how some schools in Massachusetts are trying to fix that. Plus, a Harvard study outlines the long-term health risks of gunshot survivors. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. 
Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Public schools across New England are closed for the next few weeks, probably longer. But when they do reopen, one persistent problem remains, a shortage of teachers and administrators of color. The problem is a national one, but it's very much on the minds of educators in western Massachusetts. New England Public Radio's Ben James reports on what school districts are doing or not doing to hire and support more educators of color. I definitely don't fit the typical teacher stereotype, you know. Come in, come in. Covered in tattoos, wearing shorts in December, Norman Pacheco is a 7th and 8th grade special education teacher at Holyoke STEM Academy. I'm half Chicano and half Native American, Um, so, you know, I'm a nice caramel brown. So, you know, I definitely stick out in a building. This is Pacheco's first year at Holyoke STEM, following several years at JFK Middle School in Northampton. In both jobs, he says he's been one of just a handful of teachers of color. That's a common occurrence in schools across Western Mass, even while students in these schools are increasingly likely to be Latino, Black, or Asian American. Salome Moreno is a junior. In my three years of, like, Holyoke High, uh, I've only had a singular, like, uh, teacher of color, and that was my sophomore year. She taught um, ethnic studies, and she lasted um, less than a month. (laughs) Holyoke schools are now 86% students of color, the vast majority Latino. But the percentage of teachers and administrators of color has remained far below that of students. Holyoke's professional teacher workforce is 23% people of color. Wide gulfs also exist in Amherst and Northampton. Pacheco says it's a huge problem. We need more teachers of color. We need more administrators of color. We need kids of color to see that there is a future beyond the ends of their noses. In an influential study from 2018, researchers at Johns Hopkins found that black students who had a black teacher by third grade were 13% more likely to enroll in college. Black students with two black teachers were 32% more likely to go to college. Educators call this the role model effect. And while fewer studies have been done with Latino or other students of color, Amherst senior Pierre Tillis, who's African-American, says it's a pretty simple equation. Well, I can say that it's easier to talk to somebody that looks like you. So, <laughs> Luckana Cham, also a senior at Amherst, says learning about her Cambodian culture from someone who's not Cambodian can be alienating. When I've had people talk about my past religious life or like um, the history of it, it was like like a fact. But then when somebody who was actually like that looked like me talked to me about it, I like understood it more and felt more connected and more like like felt like part of it. At Holyoke High, students Salome Moreno, Zael Vargas, and Juan Morales say they feel disconnected from many of their teachers and from many of their white peers, some of whose parents are teachers or administrators at the school. And have you ever known any of your I have, like, Latino friends who, oh, whose no. parents work in the building? Or, or? I mean, no. if they do, they're probably oh, lunch ladies. Lunch lady. yeah. 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 Or they work in the, the main office yeah. typing... Yeah, my friend's aunt is a lunch lady as well. Yeah, my friend's mom is a lunch lady. So where are the teachers of color? As I interviewed administrators about this challenge, there was a phrase I heard again and again. It's definitely the pipeline. That's John Provost, superintendent of Northampton Schools. And by pipeline, he means the cultural, institutional, and economic factors that support or often deter potential teachers. 
Kelly Curran, manager of recruitment for Holyoke Schools, describes one of the frequent manifestations of the pipeline. When I go to hiring fairs, just the people who come are mostly like white women that want to teach elementary, and there's a few, you know, history teachers. Education is dominated by white people. The Massachusetts teacher workforce is currently 90% white, and there are numerous points along the teacher pipeline where candidates of color are winnowed out. One of the biggest drop-offs occurs during testing, with fewer students of color passing the educator licensure exams. Massachusetts Education Commissioner Jeffrey Riley now proposes allowing candidates with repeat test failures to receive their licenses based on a review of their actual teaching skills. Riley calls it an alternative pathway. However it's accomplished, Damani Gordon has been waiting for decades to see more teachers of color in Amherst schools. He graduated from Amherst High in 1997. Ever since I was a kid in school, it's been talked about, you know, diversifying the staff in Amherst, and it, you know, didn't really happen too much. Gordon is now the diversity and equity specialist at Amherst Schools. He says the pipeline issues are real, but they shouldn't be used as excuses for failing to hire educators of color. It's hard to find teachers of color. It's hard to find admins of color, you know, but you have to do the work behind that. You have to go out and recruit and create systems that are institutionalized. Doreen Cunningham is assistant superintendent at Amherst Schools. We make the personal phone calls. We call people and we say, Amherst has this position available. We see that you have these qualifications that may fit. If you're interested, please apply. Amherst isn't the only district to change up its hiring practices in recent years. Northampton and Holyoke now require diverse representation on all search committees. Holyoke recruits teachers directly from Puerto Rico, and like Amherst, they've added a full-time equity position on staff. Teachers of color have gone up almost 10% in Holyoke in the last three years, while Northampton's numbers have remained static. Amherst's increase in the same time period is 5%, but the district has made substantive changes to almost every phase of recruitment, hiring, and teacher support. Jennifer Ortiz is an administrator of human resources for Amherst Schools. I think that the biggest change that came about that is we have now two different committees when we're hiring for one position. One group screens the candidates to make sure they're qualified. Another group then conducts the interviews with no prior information about the candidates. We try to make the process as blind as possible to limit the bias. In the end, the biggest change the Amherst District has made to recruitment and hiring is that their Human Resources Department is their Diversity and Equity Department, and it's run entirely by Cunningham, Gordon, and Ortiz, three black and Latino administrators. This year, almost half their new professional hires were people of color. I've been here two going on three years right now, and we had never walked into a room where 43% of the people in that room were people of color. Amherst's progress is measurable, but change isn't coming fast enough for some students. Senior Jaden Perez is a Hispanic student at Amherst High. One thing that is still an issue is I have not seen any changes in just academic teachers itself. There hasn't been any new people of color, male or female teachers, getting added into any of our core classes, which is really the big thing that affects if we pass high school or not. Here's perhaps the biggest challenge to working on equity in education. While administrators, academics, and lawmakers try to enact long-term changes to practice and policy, there are students at this moment experiencing the real impacts of systemic bias. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ben James.
A recent study from Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston says people who have survived being shot experience high rates of long-term health issues. Reporter Ryan Lindsay from the public radio collaborative Guns and America has more. Shooting survivors from three trauma centers in Boston told researchers just how much their lives had changed after being shot. 68% reported experiencing daily pain and 59% hadn't been back to work. Many screened positive for PTSD or said they had trouble with things that used to be easy, like walking, using the bathroom, driving, or showering. Here's Dr. Juan Herrera Escobar. Most of the firearm injury survivors are really struggling to come back and and have the life that they used to have before the injury. He says the study highlights that gunshot survivors are patients that have special needs when it comes to their recovery and rehabilitation once they're discharged from the hospital. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ryan Lindsay. Tyreek Marquez is a survivor of gun violence. He was shot in the head by a stray bullet when he was seven at a parade in Hartford, Connecticut. Tyreek is now a college student, and here's how he remembers that day over a decade ago. I was already in the house, and uh, we had went out back to get my sisters because it was getting dark outside. And when we started to go walk and look for them on Main Street, um, we heard shots. And this was Main Street in Hartford? Yes. Yeah. So we heard shots, and we started to run. And from there, once I got into the crowd, and uh, I, I was hit. And from there, that's all I just remember waking up in the hospital. What was recovery like for you? Um, recovery was probably the worst of it because I had to learn how to uh, walk again. And I had to learn how to do certain things, only being able to use one side of my body. And you had to learn to use one side of your body because the left side is partially paralyzed. Is that correct? Yeah, I, have, uh, I was diagnosed with partial paralysis. And what, like, talk about trying to relearn things. What was that like? What was the hardest part? Um, The hardest part, trying to relearn things, was probably walking because uh, they didn't think that I was going to be able to walk again. And uh, my physical therapist, she kind of pushed me to to get where I am today. That was that was one of the hardest parts, doing, be, having to do that, like learn how to get dressed by myself because I'm only using one hand, so, you know, I got to button up clothes and things like that. Now you've spent, it's been over a decade, so you've spent more of your life zipping up your coat with one hand and and walking with some partial paralysis. Does it feel just like how life has always been, or do you still have memories of how it was before? Um, I have, like, very slight memory of how how life was before um, I had got shot, but, like, Honestly, it's like it kind of feels like this is how life has always been. I don't know. I feel like I was too young to be impacted as much as I could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, this study found that sur- uh, gunshot survivors experience long-term health issues, um, including an impact on mental health. Can you relate to that at all? Um, I feel like I can relate to that probably in the under PTSD, only because certain things trigger memories and flashbacks and make me make me get into certain moods and think about certain things that I have to go through. Do you are you open to talking about what sort of um environments might trigger that for you? Like parties, um, you know, any crowded areas like the mall the day after Christmas and stuff like that. Anywhere where like there's crowds and where there's people like 
you know, being real, like, overly obnoxious and stuff like that where I feel like something's going to happen probably triggers me to, like, I probably get back in, like, that defense mode that I was in, probably, like, ready to go and just, you know, get away from the, the area that I'm in. Because your injury has left you partially paralyzed, do you find that people um, notice and comment? And is that annoying or does it feel – how do you feel about that? There's never any really rude comments or, like, there's never nobody, like, you know, trying to pick on you or clown you. Most people, they would just, uh, like, just come up to me and they would just ask me, like, if you don't mind me asking – that's the that's always the the giveaway. I already know what they're gonna mm-hmm. say from there. So they always say, if you don't mind me asking, um, why do you walk like that, or what happened to your arm? It's either one or the other, and I just give them the same. Sto- I give them the same answer, and they're every they always they always become shocked, and they're like, you know, like they ask me how did I survive, it, and I never have an answer for them. And what what's the same answer that you give everyone? I I'm blessed. That's that's all I can tell you. Like. They ask me how I survived a gunshot to the a gunshot wound to the head, and I tell them that I'm I was blessed. So that's always my that's always my answer. And that's how you feel. Yeah, and I kind of appreciate people asking me what happened more than I appreciate them staring. I don't like being stared at. So if you ask me and I can just tell you, and you can just go about your day, then I rather that. Yeah. How how do you feel like your experience has impacted um, what you want to do in, in the future or how you um, interact with fellow gunshot survivors? Um, I think that my experience has um, probably helped me to help others open their eyes up and really, like, show them show them that, you know, that the community that we live in, is, it shouldn't be as normal as we make it seem to hear gunshots or to lose people or to know people who's gotten shot. And the thing is, I know a bunch of people who've gotten shot, and I'm just another person on their list of people that they know who's gotten shot. Yeah. And now I don't think that it should be like that. Tyreek Marquez, thanks so much for talking. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up. The coronavirus is changing the way we grieve loved ones who die. Plus, we'll talk with author Lily King about how she wove parts of her own life into her new novel, Writers and Lovers. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Maintaining a safe distance can be especially painful when someone you know or love is grieving. You want to reach out with a hug or a handshake or share tears and laughter at a funeral. But now that all New Englanders are being asked or ordered to stay home, People are having to put off funeral services. Vermont Public Radio's Nina Keck has more. Michael Henry would like to have a Catholic funeral mass for his son, Greg. Greg had been battling cancer and died on February 29th. He was 57. While he'd grown up in Rutland, Greg Henry had been living in North Carolina. And Michael Henry says he's grateful he and his wife were able to be with their son when he died. But things have been anything but normal since. We've been kind of locked down ever since uh, we got back from North Carolina. 
His son was cremated, but because the governor has ordered Vermonters to stay home, Michael Henry says the funeral they want to have is on hold, and that's hard. Well, I, I guess you, you you don't have closure uh, because you're looking at some date down the road that that you're going to have a memorial service for him. But we don't know when, whether it's a month or two months or three months. We don't know when we'll be able to go back to the church. And so I guess until that occurs, you you don't have closure. Christopher Book feels awful for families like the Henrys. Book has been a funeral director at Aldous Funeral Home in Rutland for more than 25 years. And he says they've had to cancel five or six funerals recently. And like every business, he says they've had to adapt. We're trying to do everything by phone and email and, um, you know, trying to keep our distance. But he admits it's difficult in a business that's all about providing comfort. The toughest thing, I mean, you can't, not even to shake their hands, pretty tough. Um, you know, that's just not natural. And I feel bad for these people because, you know, when, when somebody dies, I mean, they typically hug and, you know, support each other, and they aren't doing that. And it's not just about planning visitations, selling caskets, or ordering cremations. Funeral home directors routinely travel to people's homes, and they go inside hospitals and nursing homes to pick up bodies. And Book says most of his colleagues in the funeral business in Vermont are in their 60s or older. That puts them at higher risk for COVID-19. Chris Palermo has worked for more than 40 years as a funeral home director and leads the Vermont Funeral Home Directors Association. He says in the past, a call from a nursing home would go something like this. You would arrive at the nursing home, you would go up onto the floor, go through their facility to the room in which the person has passed, and you would transfer them to your equipment and then leave the facility. You know, in terms of what we're looking at now, uh, that policy absolutely needed to change. Because of concerns of a coronavirus, the association has worked with the state health department and others to implement new protocols to ensure bodies are transported in ways that won't put funeral home directors or others at risk. What we are asking the uh, nursing home facilities to do is to bring the body to a location, whether it's a central lobby, um, an access point near an elevator and an exit door, so that when we come into their facility, we're not going all the way into their facility. And Palermo says they're working with various suppliers to make sure that funeral homes have enough protective gowns, gloves, and masks. You know, healthcare workers and death care workers are on the front lines of um, trying to navigate, you know, best practices in terms of taking care of the living and the dead. And um, there's a huge cooperative effort between all of these facilities and funeral homes to, you know, take care of folks. And, um, and it's evolving. Palermo says losing a loved one is hard enough under normal circumstances. The mission of funeral directors to take care of the dead and help the families deal with their loss hasn't changed, he says. It just may look different for a while. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nina Kak. Lily King lives in Maine and is the author of the best-selling book Euphoria. Her newest novel, Writers and Lovers, came out in March, just before events were canceled and businesses shut down. 
Like many authors, King has had to postpone her book tour for now. Instead, she's having virtual conversations, Twitter chats, and dropping into virtual book clubs for Q&A. Just a month after being released, Writers and Lovers has already hit the New York Times bestseller list. In the book, 31-year-old Casey Peabody is really struggling. Her mother has just died. She's recently broken up with someone she loves, and Casey's got a mountain of student loan debt. She's waitressing at a restaurant in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just to get by, while also trying to finish her first novel. I spoke with Lily King before the book came out, and we started with her reading the very first paragraph. I have a pact with myself not to think about money in the morning. I'm like a teenager trying not to think about sex, but I'm also trying not to think about sex or Luke or death, which means not thinking about my mother who died on vacation last winter. There's so many things I can't think about in order to write in the morning. There's so much to unpack here, but I want to start with Luke. Um, Luke is a poet who Casey falls pretty hard for at a writing residency in Rhode Island, and then they break up. Why did you decide to kind of start the book at this plot line? Well, I needed her to have a number of things already kind of in crisis. <laughs> you know, I really wanted to start the, the book kind of in the middle of someone sort of having an existential crisis. Nothing in her life is working. And so I really needed a big, disastrous love affair along with all of the debt and her mother dying and feeling like she was never, ever going to finish the novel she was working on and having to live in a, in a kind of disgusting place. <laughs> so speaking of a, a big, disastrous love affair, when I was researching for this interview, I came across a personal essay that you wrote for Modern Love, the New York Times column. And you, you write about your experience of falling in love with a poet at a writing residency, which is pretty much the same story here. Um, how much of your personal history did you invest in the characters in the book? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely drew from that experience. And I drew from a number of sort of uh, emotions that I felt at that time for many years. I mean, I, I was a I was a struggling writer for a long, long time with not a lot of hope that things were going to turn out right. And I had a lot of the same emotions that Casey did in terms of the the fear and the panic and the anxiety and the doubt and the you know questioning of every single choice. But I, I definitely tweak a lot of things. That that is one thing that sort of is you know more preserved. But Casey herself is so unlike me. I've actually just been rereading the book as in preparation for my book tour. And I'm really shocked at at, at her um, opinions and the things she says. And, uh, you know, you kind of sometimes you write these things in a little bit of a fever dream and you're not really sure what's in there. That's so interesting for you to go back and read the book that you wrote and feel shock at the character. <laughs> I know. It's a strange <laughs> feeling. <laughs> I think what happens is that, that you know, you write it and you write it and you make many revisions and then it gets kind of smaller and smaller. You know, you're, you're just going line by line. You're figuring out, you know, contraction, no contraction, comma here. And you kind of lose sight of the big picture. And now I'm I feel like I need to prepare for the big picture again. And it's sort of a destabilizing experience. <laughs> Did you like the book when you reread it and kind of re-experienced re it? 
I, I have mixed feelings about it. <laughs> I really wish that I could edit it so badly. I mean, I, I, I am editing it as I go along, but no one's going to let me change it now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going out into the world as it is. Exactly. Yeah. Um, another huge part of the story, which is hinted at in that first paragraph that you read, is Casey's grief after the unexpected death of her mother. And you really capture this feeling of loss, I felt, through memories. Um, for example, when Casey is taking her mom's ashes to the beach, you write, I don't allow myself to believe that my mother's body, her hair, her smile, the two chords that made the sounds of her voice, her heart, her good bum, her moisturized legs, her toes that tinkled when she walked, has been burned down to this rubble in my hand. And especially those phrases like good bum, moisturized legs, so specific. And I'm wondering, what did you tap into to bring out such vivid memories? Well, I think all character is in the details. And uh, so I just, I tried to, I really wanted to make her a real flesh and blood person without too much backstory. You know, I really, I I didn't want to kind of lay her out as a full character because she's not a full character. I mean, I didn't want it to be her story or Casey's story of her relationship with her mother. It's really the story of the loss of her mother, um, which is complicated. Yeah. My understanding is that right before writing this book, you also lost your mother. Um, Are there parts of her in this book or did you connect with that feeling as you were writing this book? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, again, connected with the with the emotions of it. She's a she's a very different person than my mother was very different. But I think I wrote this book because my mother died. I was working on something else. Then I my mother died very suddenly in a sort of similar way. And I couldn't write any fiction for a long time. And when I, I finally was ready to write fiction again, this book just came out of me pretty much the way it is now. Um, there's a there's a chapter when Casey, she's a waitress and she's she's waiting on these two doctors who come in for lunch and she she doesn't know how her mother died. And so in the middle of the, the meal, she just asks them, you know, she gives them the scenario of, of what happened with her mother, what she's been told and then says, you know, so what did she die of? You know, they're just they're kind of drinking their coffees and, you know, uh, she puts them in such a difficult position. And I did that once to somebody at a party um, a few months after my mother died. I did that to a doctor. And I just remember seeing the look on his face. And, and I was so happy to be able to get something like that down on paper because it felt so true to the experience. Yeah, you can really you can really feel that in the book. Um, and, and a lot of it takes place in the restaurant in Cambridge where she's waitressing. And we get this just totally vibrant picture of what it's like to work there and everyday activities. I feel like as a writer, that takes some courage to and confidence to say, yeah, I can pull off, you know, talking about her day to day job. Did you feel that way when you were putting it down to paper? I was worried. <laughs> you were. I, I was worried that I wasn't going to be able to really remember what it was like to wait tables. It's it's been many years. I did it for many years, and yes, I, I worried that it that it wouldn't be interesting. But I I always worry that no matter what I'm writing about, that's my my a big concern is that the reader is going to be bored. 
But you have to, when you're writing, push all of those doubts aside. Another driving force in the book is Casey's ambition to be a writer. Where she's at in the beginning is, you know, this dark place and she's in massive debt and kind of the driving force is, will she pull herself out of this? Um, And you've got this quote that you said, this really is the book I wanted to read when I was in my 20s and 30s and struggling with my own ambition. And I'm wondering, how would this book have helped you at that point? Well, I don't really want to give too much away, <laughs> yeah, particularly about the ending. But I do, I think it would just may have made me feel less alone. I'm not sure that I, I knew a lot of people at the time who felt the way I did. Of course, when you're going through something like that, you think that your situation is the very most desperate and everybody else's life looks so much better. I don't know if I would have loved the book. It's unclear, but um, I certainly would have liked to have had it. Was there any part of you that felt like you shouldn't or couldn't be ambitious? It just it was not part of the narrative of a woman. It wasn't part of the dialogue I, in my family. I would have just cringed at the word ambition. You hmm. know, I didn't I didn't have any confidence and ambition. I mean, that's for people who just really, really, really believe in themselves. And I didn't have that belief at all. But like Casey, you know, I just needed to write because if I didn't write, I felt worse. That was author Lily King talking about her book, Writers and Lovers, which came out last month and has already hit the New York Times bestseller list. That's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.